You're listening to. And welcome to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yu, and I'm Rira Yu. And on this episode, we have another great author chat. This time with Vanessa Hua about her new book, Forbidden City. Longtime listeners of Books and Bobo should remember that she was one of our first ever author interviews back in 2018 when she came on for her debut novel, A River of Stars. And we're so excited to have her back to talk about her latest novel, which is coming out tomorrow. If you're listening to this episode, the day it comes out, um, May 10th, 2022. This was a chat that was uh, on the table for quite a while because I remember Uh, In our first interview with her, she briefly mentioned that she was working on The Forbidden City. And when she pitched it to us, I was like, this sounds amazing. (laughs) I want to read it. (laughs) And it took a couple years, but here we are. Yeah, uh, The Forbidden City is a historical fiction novel about a young woman who becomes a close confidant of Chairman Mao during the Cultural Revolution and follows um, her journey through this very turbulent time in Chinese history. Yes, at at its core, it's a coming-of-age story. And I thought it was very uh, refreshing to visit this harrowing time in Chinese history through the eyes of a young teenage girl who has so much idealism. Uh, so I hope you guys enjoy our chat with Vanessa Hua. And we are here with Vanessa Hua, the author of the new novel, Forbidden City, as well as a returning guest to Books and Boba. Um, we had her on several years ago to talk about her book, A River of Stars. Uh, Vanessa, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me on. It's great to see you too. Yeah. Yeah. Last time we talked to you was back in 2018 and it was for A River of Stars, but because of the pandemic, so much has happened since then. So how have you been? Well, uh, we've made it at least to this stage of the pandemic. I hesitate to say that we're at the other side. Um, But yeah, I mean, during the pandemic itself, I was concerned with keeping my family safe. I have twin sons and we also live with my elderly mother. Um, but, you know, we people found ways to connect. Um, I have a f- group of friends, Asian American women. Uh, we have a, a cookbook club. And right before the pandemic, we would pick a cookbook and cook recipes from it and gather at each other's houses. And the, the last meeting was scheduled for mid-March and it was canceled. Um, but we, you know, first we did all the Zoom cocktails and trivia. Later on, we would do swaps. We would meet in a parking lot of the local BART station, the local train station, and trade pies, cookies, um, they, they uh, cocktails. It, I think that really helped us get through it. And um, yeah, and otherwise I've been busy uh, working on Forbidden City and now my my next project and yeah, excited to that that Forbidden City is entering the world and I'm getting a chance to to meet readers and uh, other authors again. Yeah. I mean, we've talked to a lot of authors throughout the pandemic and, 
you know, the assumption is while you're stuck at home, it must be real easy just to just write all the time. <laughs> but we found that that's not exactly the case. Like, how was that for you? Like being in a place where you have time to kind of just sit down and do your own thing. But, you know, there's all this other stuff going on. You, like you mentioned, you have family, you have anxiety and stress about the world. Like, was the pandemic uh, a help or hindrance to your writing? Yeah, I mean, in addition to, you know, family, Zoom school, uh, there was also, you know, the endless doom scrolling <laughs> um, that you, that I could fall prey to. But something that actually really helped and it with myself and my writing practice was I became a forager during the pandemic. Wow. Uh, um, something I'd always wanted to do. Uh, there's something and about very it. useful for your book. Yes, exactly. <laughs> useful for my book and for my next book, actually. Um, but more so than the the content of it, it um, made me sort of reconsider, you know, time, our connections, history. Uh, there's a there's a phrase in foraging called breaking the green wall, in which the plants and flowers that all seem sort of generic, like you couldn't remember their name before suddenly your gaze sharpens and you can, you can see them from what they are. Um, and that applied in so many ways to my work or just even thinking about structural and systemic things that were getting exposed uh, during the pandemic. Um, so I highly recommend it or some other practice that, that gets you away um, out of your head. Yeah, um, I remember at the end of our previous interview, you briefly mentioned The Forbidden City. That was your next work that you were working on. Um, can you briefly tell our listeners what your book is about for those who did not listen to that episode? Sure. And um, I think there's also an interesting backstory to Forbidden City and the writing of it. Um, it took 14 years. It's the first book I wrote. Oh, wow. But it's the third one I'm publishing, and we can get into that. Um, but uh, yeah, so Forbidden City is about a teenage girl who becomes the protege and lover of Chairman Mao and a poster child for the Cultural Revolution. And it was, I was first inspired by a photo I saw about a decade and a half ago of Mao pops up, it's black and white, it's surrounded by giggling teenage girls who were in plaid and reminded me of Bobby Soxers. And I was so curious what, what was going on. It turned out that Chairman Mao was a fan of ballroom dancing. In fact, he learned from an American journalist, Agnes Smedley, who went to the rebel stronghold in the late 1930s and taught foxtrot and square dancing. There wasn't, there were few other amusements <laughs> then. Um, and in the decades that followed, he'd had these cultural work troops, as they were called, in which young women would partner with him and other top cotter. And some of them stayed on uh, with titles like confidential clerk or nurse. Um, and essentially you had to go through them to get to him. They, they handled his correspondence. They interpreted what he said, uh, you know, if, when his speech became garbled. And I was just so curious about what, what it must've been like for someone who'd been raised to believe this man was a God then become a part of his inner circle. Yeah, Mao was such a larger-than-life character. Uh, we've seen so many, you know, if you look at the portraits, if you look at history books, it's hard to see him as, like, a vulnerable human being. Uh, how was it making him into a character in your book? And that's a great question, and it's true. He's iconic in the full sense of the word. He's hanging in the heart of Tiananmen Square, 
when I got in the cab in China, when I was doing research, he's hanging from the rear view mirror. <laughs> he's hanging, his portrait is hanging um, all over the country. Uh, his, his face is instantly recognizable. And yet whether someone is a villain or a hero, they're flattened. You really, you know their image or you know a few facts about their life. And that was something I really contemplated in Forbidden City, uh, given that my my narrator May is is wants to become a model revolutionary. These are the stories that she's been raised on. And I, I, I tried to find a way in which that which was flattened um, could, could be filled in. And part of that for me was, um, as I mentioned, Mao had an interest in ballroom dancing and so do I. It was the one of the most popular classes on campus my freshman year. Um, oh, interesting. Yes, and it still is at Stanford. I checked in with a current student. And she mentioned that what sort of class that has a wait list. Um, and also, uh, Chairman Mao famously was a was a huge fan of swimming, um, and you know would spend hours there, take meetings there with world leaders. Um, and there's a big swim that that kind of was um, helped kick off the Cultural Revolution in the Yangtze River. And uh, I also. Um, Emma Swimmer. I became one um, in, you know, in my twenties after I injured my foot while running. And so uh, figuring out the visceral and the embodied was a way to, to enter uh, this character or, or any character, because it's through that lived experience that we might find an understanding yeah, I mean, that's the fun of historical fiction, right? Like once you, like the fun part is dramatizing and figuring out the what ifs and filling in the blanks of history. And that's what makes the story come alive. And the Cultural Revolution is such a significant time period in China. Um, what was it like as an Asian American to write about such a big event in China. I mean, were you daunted uh, to dive into a subject that, you know, we're usually outsiders of? Well, completely. I was terrified. I wanted to make sure I did it right um, and in a nuanced way. Um, and I think what I did was, um, you know, I did lots of research, anything from nonfiction historical accounts to memoirs from that era. There's a whole genre called scar literature, because of how wounding um, those times were. I also traveled to China to uh, both as a reporter and later on to research specifically for this book to try and understand what imprint those years had on the country and continues to have. Um, and it was in the research that I began, I think growing up in the US, you, I just had a, a vague sense like, oh, teenagers waving little red books. I didn't understand the root causes. I didn't understand how much of it had to do with Mao feeling like he needed to preserve his legacy. The Great Leap Forward and the famine that followed was, was a failure. And he wanted to get rid of his rivals. I mean, it's sort of a death sentence to be a handpicked successor of his because eventually he'll see you as coming after him. And so um, May becomes a key part of his plot to to unseat his rivals. Yeah, I mean, so my family immigrated to Taiwan before the Civil War. And so we were kind of just stuck there um, throughout the 50s and 60s and, in a sense, was able to avoid the whole 
era, but it's a very heavy time. And it's one of those times when people just don't want to talk about it, right? Because it's such a, I think I heard someone talk about once, like everybody in China of a certain age, right? In the American terms would be like between like boomers and Gen X, like that generation, most of them have blood on their hands. And so that time period is just a very like dark period. Yeah. I mean, and you know, it's interesting. Um, I had thought similar to your family that since my parents both, uh, went to Taiwan at, you know, as the communists were coming to power, that they'd somehow avoided it. But it was only later in the course of working on the book that I learned that, that we did have some extended family that was deeply affected, that, you know, they were forced out of their home and crammed into a tiny space. Um, and I, I think you begin to realize, like, even if you're not there, Chairman Mao changed the course of so many millions people's of lives, the whole course of my family's history. And my mother, when she saw the galley for Forbidden City was, uh, at first she, she said, oh, was, um, maybe we can talk about revisions. And I'm like, mom, the book's done. There's no way to revise it. And she said, uh, not even the cover. <laughs> and um, as, I mean, as you know, from, from the cover, it's, it's reminiscent of socialist realist art from that era. And just even the cover made her anxious. I think it just brought up um, a lot of, you know, fear from, from those times. Um, that said, uh, she, the other day she said, I want to buy a bunch of copies to distribute to all the local libraries. So now she's come to terms with it, or now she's, she's proud of me. It's out in the world. She knows she can't change it. Um, so you mentioned in your afterward and also earlier in this episode about your inspiration, about seeing those pictures of Mao with these young women and how there weren't really a lot of, I guess, primary sources about who those women were, but you filled in a lot about what their lives would have looked like. What did you do to fill in those gaps? Well, you know, it's interesting. So I read everything I could, as I mentioned, um, and, and later, much later in the 14-year the journey, more resources began to be available online. For example, I found this journalist interview with one of the women, and she, you know, it was a long interview, um, and what she talked about in terms of the dynamics was similar to what I'd already imagined. Um, and the same with A River of Stars about the Maternity Tourism Center. There was sort of a queen bee dynamic going on in the Maternity Center, but I didn't have any first person accounts. But then afterwards, after I turned in the draft, I came across a first person account that was published and it, it mirrored what I was thinking, what I had imagined. Um, and so, I, I mean, it's a balance between again, doing as much research as you can, but treating it as a floor and not the ceiling to possibilities. And especially since May is so young, 16 years old, um, teenagers, different circumstances, but teenagers everywhere kind of also dream those big dreams or might get into those uh, dynamics with other girls, but they're all competing for the same thing. Um, and so I brought that to the character and to the book. Yeah. And also, I just couldn't help reading this book during like our current climate. You can't help but kind of see like I know even though it takes place in China and we as Americans like to think of China as like a whole different place. The things about young girls being taken advantage of, young girls seen only for their sexual potential or, or their potential as sexual partners. 
women's bodies being dictated by older men. Like it's. Yeah, I mean, this <laughs> book, uh, you said it took 14 years and so much has happened. You have like the Me Too movement and, you know, COVID, obviously. Yeah. And now, um, you know, Roe versus Wade, and you do talk about like birth control in your book. A lot of people don't realize that women did have agency in these deeply patriarchal societies yeah. uh, back then. So what was it like? Did you see a lot of parallels while you were writing this book? And how did that change uh, drafts as time went by? Yeah, especially with what's happened this week, I've been thinking a lot about bodily autonomy and the sort of uh, knowledge that the whisper network of, of what women will do to, to survive. Um, and I definitely see parallels to what's happening today. I've been thinking a lot about it. And um, I think what's interesting about historical fiction is that, yes, it's about a period in the past, but also it is a reflection of where I stand as in, you know, the life I've lived in the writing of the book. And mentioning the Me Too movement obviously would be anachronistic. Uh, they, the language that they would use um, would be very different or they wouldn't even articulate it. She wouldn't know that she could say no, let's say. Um, all the same, it really made me consider power dynamics between younger women and older men um, or sort of the debilitating effects of loneliness and isolation, which is something that May experiences with the chairman, um, you know, beloved man, but almost completely isolated. And I, I don't know that, I think it's just hard to say, oh, I saw this or I experienced X and this immediately translated um, into something that I could point out in the book. But I think overall, holistically, just having lived through so much uh, personal and global history, you know, everything from the pandemic to my father passing away to giving birth to, um, to twin sons, all of that shaped my thinking as I worked on the book. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned that this was the first uh, fiction novel that you worked on, and you had to like put it aside for your other works. Like what brought you to that decision? And when did you realize that you were ready to submit it? Well, it went out. I fit, I worked, I started in 2007. Um, I fit, worked on it in grad school and it went out on submission in 2009. And it was funny at the time I had two friends whose books were also going out on submission and they both casually mentioned, Oh, you know, this is the third book I wrote. Like I have two other books shoved in a drawer. And I remember thinking, huh, interesting. Sure. Hope that's not me. <laughs> and <laughs> lo and behold, the book came close to selling, but didn't. And I was devastated. Um, and I, I broke out in hives, like at random times for, for years and years. I mean, there's, it, it, and, and later I came to realize there were other forces at work. Um, the recession, the, the rise of the eBooks, the publishing was probably at a, you know, a less stable place than it is even now, despite the pandemic. Um, but all I could do was, was keep writing. But, but in between those projects, say like when I handed it off to a trusted reader, in between those times, I, I kept returning to Forbidden City because I just, I couldn't quit it. I believed in May and I believed in her story. And I was so ex 
excited when my my new agents were able to to package Forbidden City, the first 50 pages of it, with a river of stars, um, and that so that sold in 2016. Um, but but at the same time, I it still didn't even up to almost the finish line. I'm like, is this really going to happen? <laughs> Especially um, since there are all these supply chain issues, and my pub date was twice moved, and even the first event I was scheduled to do at the LA Times Festival of Books, I there was a mix up. They were going to send me one copy so I could bring it, and it got lost in the system. <laughs> and so the first time I saw the book in in life was was when someone brought it to the signing line. So oh wow, yes. <laughs> but it just seemed par for the course. Um, given it was just the final twist that this book had to have, and I'm I'm just. Yeah, I'm so excited to be able to talking to you both and that this book is starting to enter the world. Yeah, I mean, this episode comes out on the 9th, so the book will launch officially tomorrow, so everyone yes. should Woo. check it out. Yay! Um, we'll have a link <laughs> on our bookshop org, so if you want to, you know, support Books and Boba while you... I'm not going to keep shilling Books and Boba, our bookshop, but if you want to support both Vanessa and our podcast, you can buy it online at our, at our bookshop. You should! <laughs> <laughs> um. So... Um, I I did want to ask, like, when I was reading the book, I mean, May is so young and she's so full of hope and ambitions. And it really hurts to read as an older woman because she does make a lot of questionable choices. And so do a lot of the other women characters. Uh, no one, uh, like Marvin said, everyone kind of has blood on their hand during during this time in history. Um, but throughout the book, you realize that this story is being told in a retrospective voice. Um, May in the future is looking back on her life and her decisions. And there are a lot of moments in the book where she said, oh, if I did this differently, maybe history would have been different. So what made you decide to write the story in a retrospective voice? It was important to me to have that retrospective frame because I wanted, on one hand, to be able to show her journey uh, from youthful idealism in, into understanding and uh, disillusionment. Uh, but on the other hand, um, I, I felt that it was important to, I knew 10 years um, after the sort of events of the main body of the book would be enough time for her to, to begin to reflect on a time in which she has a lot of regret. And, um, you know, what's interesting is the book is addressed to a very specific audience I don't mean reader, but someone she has in mind. And that I didn't realize I should put in until late in the the life cycle of the book. I think not till after the sale of the book. And yet I feel both the retrospective narrator and the audience she has in mind is what eventually made the book come together. That was kind of fun to try to figure out who that person was, too, because I was like, "Is, is she talking to this person? Or is it this yeah. person? <laughs> yeah. Um, I thought May was interesting because, like, she was a teenager. Because teenagers of all different generations go through so much change. And I think all teenagers do have that starry-eyed optimism until they're kind of broken by the environment that they're in. Um, it was a little jarring because I was doing the math in my head. And older Mei Xiang 
is still younger than me in the book. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I think about people who've survived genocide or all war or all these horrors, and yet they still have most of their life ahead of them, though they're shaped by events that were so monumental in their teenage years. Yeah. And again, I couldn't help thinking, just because, you know, we live in the States and there's lots of stuff happening here right now. I couldn't stop drawing parallels of political idealism giving way to just almost nihilism and mirroring that with like, you know, the late aughts versus like 2016 and onward, right? Like there's something to be said about deifying public figures and how there's no such thing as like a true hero, right? Everyone has done stuff to get to where they are. And if you peel back the layers, like nobody is innocent. And I think that's in some ways learning that lesson is what makes you into an adult, right? Exactly. Exactly. And uh, I did want to say sort of the dynamics that we see in the dance troupe where the girls are, there's rivalries and they're turning on each other and their struggle sessions It's about teenagers, but it's also about what was going to unfold during the Cultural Revolution, where neighbors turned on neighbors, students turned on their teachers, uh, kids turned on their parents, uh, where they were speaking in the name of revolution on one hand, but also settling scores or taking out revenge. And I think so often teenage girls can be dismissed or discounted their experiences when in fact it's emblematic of of what's happening across society. Yeah, and I think May being part of the generation where she is a latecomer to like Mao's rule in in, uh, China and also like having this nostalgia and being like, okay, like we missed it, but we still have a chance to uh, change this country and be heroes, but she does get disenchanted later on. So I thought that was like a really interesting choice of putting her in that specific uh, gap between generations. Yeah, thank you. And, you know, I I did some research and it doesn't appear in the book, but I did find uh, there's a book by Jeremy Barme called Shades of Mao, in which he talks about how there was a posthumous Mao cult in the late 80s, right before the Tiananmen Massacre. Uh, there were people who were impatient with the pace of change, of reform, and they said, like, they they saw something to admire in Mao. Or even more recently, Gen Z in China, again, they see the vast inequality in the country, and they were born 1997 onward, They two decades after the Cultural Revolution ended. So they have no personal, they didn't live through that time, and so it they can see them in a certain way compared to those who have not. Yeah. I mean, class struggle is just something that is not going away. Yeah, it's not going away. away. Whether you live in a capitalist society or a socialist society, it is a thing that we will always struggle with. Yes. Yeah. It's the great problem of our time in addition to, you know, racism and all that other stuff, too. Yeah. Sexism, patriarchy. Man. Remember when we thought all of our issues were solved in like (laughs) the early 2000s? I mean, it is, it's, it's funny, like, um, so the, the, yeah, the two, early 2000s or even the late, uh, the 90s, I was, I was reading up on the decade and it's been thought that it was a time of, it was like a golden age or a time of prosperity, but I thought there's, there was war and other problems then too. I don't know if, if we always are thinking that the, another time in the past was simpler when 
even in those times, they thought yet some other time before that was simpler. Uh, I did have a question about your title, The Forbidden City. I feel like it is such a like a curious title for people who will just pick up the book and not know anything about the story. Uh, did you have any alternate titles? Yes, this is probably the third or fourth title. And I can also explain how I, I came to it. Um, but I think it was originally called New Skies, which is based off of a Mao quote, um, dare to dream um, under, you know, under a new sun and moon. Um, then another one was uh, Without Heaven, because that was a quote uh, about Mao uh, by a journalist that said he was like a man who lived without law and without heaven, meaning he just did his, whatever he wanted. <laughs> another title was Third Daughter, because Mei Shang is third daughter um, and talked about her, you know, it talks about her uh, her place in, in her family and in her society. Um, but my editor finally suggested Forbidden City because it was so evocative. And initially I thought, well, but it's not the Forbidden City Museum that everyone visits. Will it be confusing? But then I began to realize, well, what's so intriguing is uh, Zongnan Hai, which I called Lake Palaces in the book. That is the true Forbidden City. Sure. The, the, the gates uh, are open, the tickets are sold for the Forbidden City Palace Museum, but it's next door in the garden complex. That's the country's real seat of power and has these high red walls. You know, there isn't any public access. So that's the true Forbidden City. And, and also the chairman himself, May, is trying to, you know, circling and circling him, trying to understand him, trying to find a way in. And so I, I felt the novel's title was evocative on several levels. And that's so, so I was, I'm, I'm happy in the end that this is what we arrived upon. Speaking of Meishan, that reminds me of something that I definitely um, related to, which is the, um, when you were explaining um, generational names and how Meishan and her sisters all share the maids, the May um, middle name, which yeah. is also my generational name with my family. Oh, <laughs> so, <laughs> Well, in my family, it's uh, my sister, older sister, Tian Xing, and my brother is Tian Long, and I'm mm. Tian Fong. So my brother is a heavenly dragon, and I'm a heavenly phoenix. And so, yeah. <laughs> yeah I, well, and I know some families, the generational name is dictated by a family poem. Yeah, that, our family has a poem that dictates okay. our, our generational names. So if we ever meet a, another Ye or Le out in the wild, we can tell what generation they are based <laughs> exactly. on their name. Uh, fortunately or unfortunately, my generation name is May, which is the word for beautiful, yeah. which is traditionally used in girls' names. So um, <laughs> all the all the men in my generation have, I guess, more feminine names. Well, your your parents were more progressive than you realized. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, names are a big deal in our culture. Yeah. Like. Yeah. Um, so um, so my Chinese name is Mei Hong, which is like beautiful, I guess, warrior or brave. Yeah. Um, so I guess they decided, let's go super masculine for the given name <laughs> to bring balance to to the more feminine um, middle name. But, but but Mei also works well since you grew up and you were born and raised in the U.S., right? Like yeah. Mei Wall or um, America, beautiful yeah. country. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, my name is really like, cause my surname also has, it's a points. So has, there's two different pronunciations of my surname. So I, I respond to both, but it, it gets oh. a little 
confusing yes. when you get out into Chinese-speaking countries. Yes. Yeah, I'm yeah. sure like your relatives are like, did you know that you're pronouncing your name incorrectly? <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, like speaking of names, I mean, like May, when she's with these girls, I, I'm not sure if it's their actual names that they go by because everybody has nicknames. And I think somewhere in the book, um, they say that like having a nickname, it gives them their own like individuality because where they're from like in their villages they're always referred to as um, for May for example like third daughter and um, I just wanted to ask like were were the uh, like were the other girls names uh, their actual names derived from like their birth name or was it something that you came up with to fit their character? Yeah, there were nicknames uh, that the girls came up for each other. And as we know, naming is a form of power or claiming a, a nickname is, is a form of power. And it also, so there's like Midnight Chang, Busy Shan, uh, uh, Dolly Yu, and the their surname is a part of their nickname. But it, I mean, it's something I saw covering Chinatown or in China, they seem to only know each other's last names and then there might be some nickname appended to it. So anything from old so-and-so to chubby so-and-so to uh, barber so-and-so, I mean, they're all, um, you know, it might be by a physical attribute. It might be by their job. It might be something about some, some, some witticism about who they are. Um, And so I wanted to, be able to convey that in in um, in the, the dance troupe. When you were talking with uh, women in China about uh, the Cultural Revolution and uh, Chairman Mao, do you have any like memorable moments from those interviews? Like anything that surprised you? Well, it, it was interesting how education could elevate through the generations, and of course that might seem obvious, but I, I really saw it in action. There was a woman who was talking about how she was able to learn how to read as an adult after the revolution. I I can't remember if it was maybe weekend classes or night classes. She even went with her baby strapped on her back. And generations later, she was very proud. Her son was the bathroom attendant in the village, which the translator I was with explained to me is a very good government job. And so the fact that I mean, this just speaks to the power of education, right? And that that is going to to sort of change your whole outlook and your possibilities, not only for yourself but for for your children. Um, but then, in other cases, it, I remember a woman, an old a, a granny, got alarmed when I was asking about the Cultural Revolution, and she instantly clammed up and said, "Oh, I'm I'm I don't know how to read. Don't talk to me about this." I think, on the other hand, some people like the shopkeepers selling. Um, reproductions of Red Guard statuettes, they know there's money to be had. They know that <laughs> tourists come and say, like, do you have anything like this? And um, and yet when I talked to one, he, he tried to say, like, oh, this is just for show. They were just scaring each other as if to say, like, no, there was no violence for death. It was just just for show. And so, I mean, they're torn because at the end of the day, they're driven by by survival, by the need to, to make a living. And so um, knowing that this is something that this is something perceived as having a value, I think they're certainly aware of that. But 
yet a full reckoning is very difficult because to to go against Mao would be to go against the very foundations of their country to would be to call out their neighbors that they've been living with uh, next door all these years. And, and so, I mean, it's difficult no matter what, whatever country you're, you're in. I mean, just look at all this discussion over this, you know, slavery and it's, it's enduring legacy and just the reactions to it, um, you know, trying to, to, to critically examine race. Um, so, it's it's difficult for any country to to reckon with its past. Yeah, I mean, uh, it kind of like reminded me of like North Korea now because I heard that like Gen Z, even though the country doesn't allow makeup, they've like produced their own makeup and kind of sell it in the black market. And even though it's illegal, I mean, it's their way of life and it's a way to support their family and it just kind of reminded me of that, like... There's always a way yeah. uh, around the, around the government, and in some parts they'll kind of turn a blind eye to it because what are, what else are you going to do? You, you have to survive. Yeah, the the sort of um, I think that's something uh, consistent to all three of my books that um, looking at the resourcefulness and ingenuity um, and fierceness that's necessary to survive in systems which are almost entirely turned against uh, the individual. And so my characters find a way through, um, though I think survival comes at a cost, especially with Forbidden City. You know, she's very cognizant of who and, and what she's lost to be able to to get where she is now. Yeah, definitely a lot of consequences from from her actions in the book. I do not I don't want to spoil anything in this book, but a lot happens, uh listeners. So definitely pick up The Forbidden City. It should be out now by the time you're listening to this episode. Yeah. Um so as we wrap up our conversation, once again, thank you so much for joining us, Vanessa. Um what's next? What are you working on now? I am about 100 pages in to a book about surveillance and suburbia i'm very excited about wild coyotes make an appearance um and i'm also contemplating a short story or an essay collection and yeah i'm i'm about to head out more fully on tour i had a few events that couldn't get changed but with the official pub date um i'll now have a chance to to meet more readers and and i'm really excited yeah congratulations again on the book launch um excited that more people will be reading this book and i hope uh, i hope we did a good job uh yes. convincing people to check it out uh, it's exciting it's sad it's um it makes you think and i think that's the mark of a really good book thank you so much yeah i really appreciate your questions and yes everyone listening support books and boba <laughs> <laughs> well thank you so much vanessa and hopefully we'll talk to you next time with your with your next work i'm yeah. very excited thank you so much and that was Vanessa Hua, the author of The Forbidden City, um, coming out tomorrow, May 10th, 2022, at booksellers everywhere. Uh, we'll have a listing on our Books and Bubble bookshop um, if you want to pick up the book there. Um, if you do, you do support both Vanessa, local bookstores, and the Books and Bubble podcast. So uh, we definitely do appreciate it. Um, but yeah, definitely check it out. You'll have a, I can't promise you have a good time. You'll enjoy reading it. Uh, you'll feel sad, but you'll also feel, I guess, in the end, it does have a kind of a hopeful conclusion, right? I don't want to spoil okay. it. <laughs> 
you just have to find out if you if you want to know by reading the book. Yeah. But, Uh, yes, thank you again to Vanessa Pav for taking the time to speak with us. And for those of you who would like to read our APAM 2022 book club pick, uh, it's Portrait of a Thief by Grace D. Lee. This is a book that has uh, popped up in our previous episodes many times. It already has a film deal, and it was on the New York Times bestsellers list. And it is a story about five Chinese Americans who pull off a heist to steal back artwork from Western museums and return them to their original owners in their homeland. So it's kind of like Ocean's Eleven, and uh, you know, what better way to celebrate a Pam uh, by reading? <laughs> About stories where they say "fuck colonialism" <laughs> and reclaiming our heritage. So, Heck yeah, it's gonna be a fun read. I'm excited. Um, yeah, we'll be discussing that book at the end of the month. So, um, if you have finished the book or if you finished the book early, uh, please let us know your thoughts on Goodreads, uh, and we'll try to incorporate those thoughts into our book club discussion. Uh, but on that note, that'll do it for this episode of Books and Boba. Thanks again to Vanessa Hua for joining us. Um, her book again um, is Forbidden City, which is launching tomorrow, May tenth, twenty twenty two, at booksellers everywhere. Um, yeah, thanks for listening, and we'll see y'all next time. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Ri Ryu, and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget, you can support Books and Boba and Asian American authors by purchasing books at our bookshop.org account. Check out the link in our show notes and also at booksandboba.com. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian American hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, Brian, did you go to Saturday school as a kid? I sure did. Did you? Totally. Well, at our podcast Saturday School, we don't teach a language, but we pass along the culture that we do know, and that's Asian American pop culture. Ada is a journalist, and I'm a professor and film festival programmer. We've watched a lot of great Asian American movies, and we want you to watch them too. Come listen to us as we look back at the pioneering films that have led us to today.
Hi, I'm Quincy Cho. And I'm Kay Khan Apu. And we host Marvel Makeup. It's a podcast where I teach Quincy a little about Marvel. And I teach Kay a little bit about makeup. Join us as we watch and talk about every movie and TV show in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which I'm mostly watching for the first time. And join us as we apply makeup stuff to our faces, which I'm using for the first time. Marvel Makeup is part of the Potluck Podcast Collective, and you can find new episodes every other Monday wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can catch video versions of Marvel and Makeup on our YouTube channel. So please rate, review, and subscribe. And please give us five stars so our Asian moms will understand why we buy so much electronic equipment. Because it's for this podcast, Marvel and Makeup. <laughs>